you very much. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you. And to those who are listening online, welcome. Glad that you're able to join us uh, through the internet. If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to be reading a portion from there and then uh, some portions out of chapter 5. It's wonderful to see so many uh, visiting with us. Uh, some of you have been here before. Others are first-timers. And, and there's a couple here that seen it. I was trying to remember when the last time was I saw you guys, but uh, many, many years ago, so glad that Dorbeckers could be here. Welcome, welcome. All right, uh, Galatians chapter 3. Now, before I actually uh, read here, just uh, a little bit of a recap of where we are, so that as we do the reading, you've got your mindset in the proper frame. We began last week taking a look at this thought of what it means to be adopted and the implications of being adopted by our Lord, and particularly thinking about the joy of the adoption that is ours through Jesus Christ. And uh, we began looking at chapter 3, verse 23, and then on into chapter 4, looking at particular uh, aspects or reasons for our joy, the joy of one faith that we have in uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, faith that only the Lord can give, and it's, it's not a wishful thinking kind of faith, it's a faith in a sure and certain hope that is ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a joy in one baptism, which is a focus here in this passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, speaking particularly of the baptism of the Spirit, I believe, one baptism for the remission of sins, as the Nicene Creed puts it. And it's a baptism that identifies us and unites us as the people of Christ. It's about being part of a family. It's a huge part of the joy that is ours as we're, we are adopted. And then we uh, took a look also at, I guess if you want to talk about the, the benefits of our adoption, it's if these things we've been talking about are not enough, but Paul has an emphasis, uh, in particularly going on into chapter 4, of the inheritance that is ours. There's, there's, a, there's a status that comes with being adopted into God's family. And with that status come the privileges that are poured out upon us when we don't deserve it, but he gives them to us anyway of oneness, unity, confidence and an inheritance with him an inheritance that he has promised to his people an inheritance that can only be obtained through redemption and an inheritance that goes beyond material things or even position but it's an inheritance of a relationship ultimately with our God himself a relationship that we would not have otherwise because of sin so we're really speaking about our status, as I've used that word before, with the Lord because of this adoption. And that is an incredible, an incredible uh, source of joy for us. But uh, there's more to it. And so we're going to read now. Again, I'm going to start at chapter 3 and verse 23. 
And then read to the end of chapter 3, and then I'm going to jump down to chapter 5. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word and um, give close attention as I read, please. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. And then down to chapter 5, please, beginning at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy and infallible word. Please be seated. Now I would assume that pretty much everyone here, except the very youngest perhaps, uh, would be well acquainted with the phrase work ethic, work ethic. By that, we usually mean that someone works hard to not only accomplish the, the, the bare minimum of their work, but is internally motivated and disciplined to excel without someone constantly looking over their shoulders. Uh, you know, to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is a good thing in most respects, and I think it's proper to admire that kind of work ethic. But there's a point, however, where someone with a good work ethic may cross a line and gets renamed as something else. Do you know what that other something else is? One word, workaholic, I heard it out there, a workaholic. By this, we typically mean someone who doesn't have the proper priorities in life. Work consumes them at the expense of relationships or their expense of health or their very character. They find their whole identity wrapped up in the ongoing performance of their work rather than in more important matters such as character personality, connections, relationships, and discernment. However, even a good work ethic, as we've just defined it, is not so good 
when it comes to the salvation of our souls. And I don't think you'd have any understanding, uh, any trouble understanding that a spiritual workaholic is just deadly. The appeal of accomplishment uh, in the area of the soul lures us in, just as it did the Galatians, into thinking that pursuit of perfection through the law is the way to go. That's what we're going to do. The Pharisees were great at that. Jesus said, you guys are straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're trying so hard to please God and you're missing the, the big thing right in front of you, which is God himself. Some now, just as then, find their whole identity in working to keep even the areas of the law that have been clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, and not just fulfilled at one point, but fulfilled once for all. To do that, to have that kind of workaholic mentality towards the, our relationship with, with God is to live as a slave, as Paul lays out here in the book of Galatians. But you and I are to be pursuing the freedom of the gospel. Now, you might say, what does all this have to do with adoption? Well, think about it. The adoptee does not have to work to be adopted. In fact, if they're really little, there's absolutely nothing that they're doing at all. Nothing. But they get adopted anyway. Um, and furthermore, an adoptee doesn't have to work to maintain that relationship. I remember when we adopted our son Eli in Ukraine, the judge said to us, <laughs> it's kind of funny, uh, he says to us, now you know, you cannot bring him back. <laughs> it was done. It was done. And Eli, great kid, but he didn't do anything to earn being adopted. And he hasn't done anything to earn staying our son. He just is. The workaholic part of us, though, wants to think that we somehow have to work to get there and work to keep it. And that's what Paul is arguing against with the Galatians. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. I didn't do this last week, uh, but uh, now's a good point, a good time to do this. Galatia is a province of, or was a province of Asia Minor. It was a Gentile region, okay? Uh, many members, uh, if not the majority of the members of the churches there uh, were Gentile believers. There were Jewish believers that came in, and as they did, as would be expected, they would bring with them uh, the, uh, the remnants of their heritage as well, and there's no problem with that. But the issue that this entire epistle is dealing with is the threat of a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were called Judaizers. And the Judaizers were those who insisted that in order to be complete as a Christian, that Gentiles also had to keep all the minutiae of the Jewish law. 
uh, what to eat, what to wear, circumcision, the whole thing. And, and even though the Jerusalem Council had specifically declared that this was not necessary, and in fact it was wrong, these false teachers kept at it, apparently with some success. I mean, I guess that's not really that surprising. It's rather appealing, is it not, to congratulate ourselves that we're more holy and complete than others because we have the perception to see and do things that others do or do not. The Galatian church no longer had simply a good work ethic. Uh, they were becoming a church of spiritual workaholics. To put it in the terms of adoption, they weren't living as adoptees. They weren't living as children. They were living as employees. And Paul said, this is a real problem. And employees that were constantly living in fear of the next employee evaluation that might get them terminated. And Paul says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've been adopted into the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the joy of this adoption. Freedom. The joy of true freedom. From fear, from slavery, from, from the constant having to do something to maintain your relationship with God, which you can't actually work anyway because we're all fallen in sin. I mentioned last week that uh, over, over 60 years ago, I was adopted by a loving couple who took me into their home. They gave me everything I needed and a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't, but sure liked a lot. I don't ever remember, though my mother may dispute this one, you understand I'm speaking in the non-absolute sense. I've never been hungry. <clears throat> I've uh, never been alone. I've never been unloved. I've never wanted for clothing or shelter or education or anything else. My life was settled and secure in both the physical realm and the relational realm, and it still is, praise God. Now, I never met my birth mother, and it wasn't uh, until I was an adult that I had enough curiosity to try, try to find out what my birth mother's name was, and I was eventually able to find that out. Uh, when I did, I was disappointed to discover that she was deceased by that time. I, I don't know if I have any other siblings out there or not, uh, but I do know that my birth family originally came from the same area of England that my adoptive family came from, which is kind of cool, the same shire. Um, but even though, you know, I was disappointed by that, I, I nonetheless remain settled and satisfied with my situation because I know the love and commitment of my adoptive family. Personally, um, I do have an interest in the bloodline question. It became more important to me, actually, when Karen and I uh, had Chelsea because, um, so, you know, you get all these medical things about your family history and medical history and all that. I'm going, 
I don't know. You know. And so I started getting curious to think about, well, maybe I could find some things out what my propensities might be. It's probably just as well that I don't know what my birth mother was susceptible to. I just don't have to worry about it because I don't know. Um, but anyway, I, though I'm interested in it, would, be, would it be kind of cool to find out if I had brothers and sisters out there somewhere? Yes. But I believe I would be a fool to abandon my present family and go in search of a family that didn't want me in the first place or at the best shot were unable to take care of me. Why would I do that? I mean, things might have changed, but it sure was an uncertain beginning. And there's no real relationship beyond just something casual, I believe, that could really exist anyway at this point. This is the kind of thing that's behind what Paul is saying here uh, to the Galatians in chapter 4. In verses 5 through 7, we took a look at this last week, because uh, you are sons, uh, or to redeem those, uh, okay, verse 4. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, he says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay? Paul's saying, you've been made joyful heirs through adoption. Why? Why on earth would you want to go back to being a slave? Live in the joy of your adoption. Verse 10. What do we have there in verse 10 of chapter 4? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid, he says, I may have labored over you in vain. What in the world are you thinking? Redeemed by Christ into freedom. Freedom from the outward requirement of fulfilling the law, such as observing all the days and seasons and everything else. Just to, because you think that that's going to help you have a favorable standing with the Father. Beloved, he's done it all. And he's done it all through Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. The best that you can do is filthy rags, the, the prophet Isaiah says. So give it up. What makes you think that returning to the requirements of the outward keeping of all the minutiae of ceremonial law, he's saying to the Galatians, what makes you think that returning to that requirement as if your uh, salvation depended upon you makes any sense? It's a rhetorical question here for Paul. It doesn't make any sense. Paul calls in verse 9 this kind of thinking weak and worthless. Do you really want to be a slave again? You could just see Paul shaking his head in disbelief. But nevertheless, the appeal of this sort of thing continues. And it continues in part because, uh, and it continued with the Galatians uh, in part because of the efforts of the Judaizers who 
who kept painting this way of living as this wonderful thing, even though it is a cheat and a deception. Look at verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they want to exalt themselves in your eyes, see how much holier we are than, than you. You need to be like us. And they were robbing the Galatian believers of their freedom, the freedom in their adoption to just live as unto the Lord, as a child of God who was loved, cared for, signed, sealed, and delivered. No possibility of anyone snatching them out of the Father's hand. These folks, uh, these Judaizers, were pretty good at stroking the egos of those there in Galatia. And that, just like that, that inner workaholic that we have uh, going uh, in our own minds that wants to feel good about our ability to earn points with God is really putting forth an absolute lie. Paul has already pointed out to the Galatians that the Judaizers, this is from uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, he says the Judaizers are false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. I suppose we could spend a little time thinking about why, why the Judaizers would want to do that. I mean, who wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I think I'm going to go enslave my brothers and sisters today. I kind of doubt that too many of them are doing that. Maybe some among the leadership who are really scheming and calculating to be put into to areas of authority, perhaps. But I would suspect that many of these Judaizers were well-meaning. They, they were trying to be zealous for the law. They were trying to be zealous for God's glory. They thought they knew better than, uh, than God did about what uh, was required to come into his presence and to remain there. And so they foist this on others. And along the way, it strokes their own egos, builds them up. And hey, that's a pretty good thing too. Uh, it's nice to be looked at and thought of as the Holy One. I remember when uh, I was in high school, um, my friend Bob here will remember um, some of those days. And uh, I, 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 I was on a journey, and it wasn't a real smooth one. And, um, you know, I professed Christ, but I wasn't living that way. But my mother was working in the school office, and she told me this later, and it, it cut me to the heart. She's, and, I, and, and I think <laughs> she didn't make a whole lot of comment on it, except just to tell me that this happened, and then just kind of, as she's good at doing, and then I had to let it simmer in my, in my heart. She said, yeah. Uh, I have mothers come into the office and say, I sure wish my son was like your son. And then she just let that sit there because she knew my what struggles were going on. And that... Boy, that statement, I've never forgotten that statement. You know, there's, the appearances that we have can hide all kinds of junk, can they not? And, you know, you look at, 
at what's going on here um, with the Judaizers. They look pretty good on the outside. But ultimately, they were trying to earn their salvation by keeping things that were already fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ completely. All the sacrificial system, all the matters of approach to God when he, Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn, the, the entrance was open to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. But they want to go back and sew it back up again, spiritually speaking. And make people jump through all the hoops to get to God again so that they could feel good about themselves. Well, just when, I, when my mother told me that as a teenager, I knew that I remember thinking to myself, if, if these mothers only knew, they wouldn't want their kids to be like me. But at the same time, there was just the littlest part of my ego that went, okay. My, my uh, camouflage seems to be working. And that's what all this works, the smokescreen of our works and trying to go back and do all these things to earn our salvation really is. It's we're trying to camo what is really going on in our hearts, which is sin and corruption and deception and running away from God and rebellion against him. It's going back and wanting to be a slave. As Paul tells us in the book of Galatians here, also in chapter 3, makes it very clear, no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And so here in chapter 4, at verse 21, uh, he, he comes to an object lesson. A tale of two covenants. Even the Gentiles would be familiar with the tenets of this story in his day, uh, particularly those that had any involvement whatsoever with the Jewish people. But the remarks here are particularly aimed at the Judaizers and those who were sympathetic to them and following them. He hits them right where they live. Tell me, you desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? Do you even know what it says, is the way we would put it uh, these days. Yes, you are Abraham's offspring, chapter 3, verse 29. But, in, but, but what that, that lineage really only counts if it's in Christ, through the line of promise, not through the line of man's presumption and personal efforts to bring about deliverance through human Wisdom, which is the story of Abraham and Hagar and Abraham and Sarah and the children that came from them. Why is there an Ishmael? Yeah, he's the firstborn, but he's not the child of promise. There's an Ishmael because Abraham and Sarah, having heard God's promise, believed it was going to happen and decided to take matters into their own hands because it was going too slow and they needed to get this get this son going. And so they sin against God and against each other by him taking Hagar as a wife, as a concubine, not as a wife, as a concubine, <coughs> and has a child by her. 
And Paul is using this as the scriptures do uh, to be an allegory, to show us something of a spiritual, uh, a spiritual reality. The line of Ishmael, born to the slave Hagar, represents the law, not just of Moses, of course that hadn't happened yet, right? Uh, but of the requirement of the covenant of works in general, that you must obey, you must do certain things in order to earn your relationship with God. In order to bring about your redemption, the reformation of your soul, your eternal, in, your eternal inheritance, you must fulfill everything that God has ever commanded. How are you doing on that? And this is what the, the picture here of the earthly Jerusalem, you notice you've got the, the two, the, the slave woman and the free woman, Hagar and Sarah, and also you have Mount Sinai and, um, and, uh, and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. You have the two, two ladies and the two the mountains in, in, in contrast to each other. Um, the earthly Jerusalem was all about that. It was about the Judaizers with their insistence upon the laws of eating and the feasts and having to be circumcised in order to be saved, uh, and all the rest that, was, that went along with that. But the line of Isaac, on the other hand, born to the wife, Sarah, represents the covenant of grace, in which we, we have a standing in that covenant because of Jesus Christ, who did indeed perfectly fulfill all the works of the law, all that was required in the covenant of works on our behalf. And you see that? in verses 4 and 5, which we saw that last week we looked at that, when the fullness of time God, uh, God sent forth his son to redeem us. He perfectly fulfilled it. The, and and the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the reality uh, of which the earthly Jerusalem is but a shadow, that heavenly Jerusalem is the source of our life, our mother which corresponds to Sarah's motherhood of Isaac. The relation, the inheritance of a son of God, a child of God, will not be shared with a slave. Paul says, don't go back to wanting to be a slave. There's no inheritance there. There's no deliverance, there's no redemption, there's no peace, there's no safety. You can't earn it. And so... The point is, don't go back there. Cast out the slave mentality. Cast out the employee mentality. Live like you're a family member. A family member that's not going anywhere. Abandon that precious workaholic attitude because you can earn nothing before God. Christ has already earned it and he did it perfectly as only he could do. Pursue the freedom and live in the freedom that is truly in the gospel. There is no good news in slavery. Paul points out here in chapter five, verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You were called to freedom and not freedom to do 
whatever you want in sin, but freedom to truly live unto God in safety and peace and security, rejoicing in his goodness. You know, your, your adoption into Christ by his grace brings joy both in your own heart and in the church as well. If you're lacking joy in that salvation, maybe you haven't been adopted. You're just trying to pretend and slip into the family unnoticed. <clears throat> or perhaps you've just forgotten what your adoption is all about. And I hope the message from the book of Galatians the last, this, this week and last will help remind you of that. Remind you of what a blessing our adoption is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditate upon your unity in faith, your unity in identity, your unity in inheritance, and your, your unity as in this family with the rest of the body, your unity in freedom. And as you do so, beloved, be filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. A redemption that doesn't merely clean us up and set us on a shelf somewhere, but a redemption and a deliverance that takes us out of darkness into light, that takes us from being enemies to being friends and more than friends to being sons and daughters, heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we know that what you do cannot be undone by any man. So Lord, let us be filled with joy in the faith that we share, our identity together as a family, the inheritance that is ours, and in the freedom that is ours to enjoy all of those things without fear of rejection, without fear of being cast out, we thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us, that none can take us out of your hand, that you keep us faithfully, and not just for this time, but for eternity. Lord, fill our hearts again with joy in our adoption, we pray. We pray these things in the name of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.